Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington, but today we're coming to you from San Francisco, California, with some awesome California journalists. We're here to bring you the latest news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping this week at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, June 14th. As usual, news happens fast, even here on the West Coast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by my DC podcast colleague, Joanne Cannon of Politico. Good morning, everybody. Carrie Feibel, health editor at KQED Public Media for Northern California. Happy to be here. And Anna Maria Berry Jester, who covers public health for 538.com. Thanks for having me. Welcome, all of you. And just so you know, listeners, we do have an audience here in the room at the brand new Kaiser Family Foundation headquarters just across from the Giant Stadium. They're here to watch today, not participate, but you may hear them in the background. And also, before we get to the news, we have some of our own podcast news. Fellow podcaster Sarah Cliff had her baby this week, baby Max. So we wish them well. And we'll see Sarah back when she's done with her maternity leave. And this better be the first Max podcast call out. Nobody should have beat us to this. Right? That's right. <laughs> so, so I would hope. And we're expecting another What the Health podcaster baby in the next several weeks. Um, we'll announce that, too. So, panel, I was planning to have an all-California kind of news podcast this week, but I think we have to start with the national news that broke after we taped last week, though there is a California twist to it, which we will get there. Um, Last Thursday night, the Trump administration responded to the lawsuit filed in February by 20 Republican attorneys general, claiming that Congress's elimination of the tax penalty for not having health insurance rendered the entire rest of the Affordable Care Act unconstitutional. Now, the brief filed by the Justice Department in the lawsuit didn't go as far as the Republican attorneys general, but it does argue that the abolition of the penalty in last year's tax bill should invalidate the health law's pre-existing condition protection. Who wants to kind of walk us through this, Joanne? Well, it changed all of our lives because we sort of thought that, you know, maybe we'd have some, like, catch up on laundry time. No, forget it. No health reporter will ever catch up on laundry time. I will for point out, though, at, at the press conference in which this was unveiled in February, I think the only reporters were me and your reporter, Jen, Jen Habercorn. Right. It's a huge development. It, it, um, it creates the, the lawsuit is called Texas versus USA because Texas and Wisconsin are the lead plaintiffs. And the, um, Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, basically took the side of Texas against the USA. He um, decided not to defend the law in court. Texas, Wisconsin, and the the total of 20 states, uh, state attorney generals, they wanted the entire law thrown out. The Department of Justice didn't go that far, they're, but they are asking for this sort of crux of coverage. The man, they're arguing that since Congress eliminated the penalty for the mandate, brought it down to zero dollars, effective 2019, that these two related conditions, the uh, um, pre-existing condition protection, the technical term is guaranteed issue. And, and community and rating. community rating, which is a technical term for saying I can't just charge some old person way, way more than some young person or some sick person more than a healthy person. It's basically the consumer protections that are really popular even um, if you poll, well, as Kaiser has polled, they're really popular. Um, people don't like the mandate, including Democrats, and people do like the pre-existing condition protections, including Republicans. A lot of lawyers think it's a far-fetched argument, but it 
creates another, I mean, and then the Republicans in the Senate, they don't want to be defending this at all, or Congress. They don't want to be going in. Senator Frist is uh, nodding. He's no longer in the Senate, but his former colleagues really do not want to be defending this between now and November. It's it's going across the, the against the most popular thing. The thing, the, the, the it's what stopped repeal last year, part of what stopped repeal last year. Yeah, I mean, there are those who are saying this is handing the Democrats a huge gift in the elections. Right. And uh, the Democrats, you know, if they stay in D.C. for August, are going to just talk about this. It's the most visible part, I think, of the Affordable Care Act, because you can get people with pre-existing conditions up on the Hill. And I think you're right. In the town meetings, the town halls last year, that's what it was. Yeah, just shut down the debate and make it very, very politically difficult. Candidate Trump himself said, you know, well, I don't like a lot about the law, but I do support pre-existing conditions, but this isn't about consistency. So here we have a a different development. But, um, you know, California's attorney general is going to fight this and he is uh, joining with other states. um, And this is just one of the healthcare issues in which he's saying, you know, this is us versus Trump on behalf of the rest of the states. We're going to take. And interestingly, the states have all were already allowed to intervene in this lawsuit to defend the law, which, of course, is now necessary because the Justice Department isn't or isn't defending the law in its entirety. So it's 16. I think it's 16 states attorney general. All Democrats. Not all Democratic state, not all Democratic governors, but Democratic AGs. are, are left because the Department of Justice isn't defending the law. These states led by California's Attorney General, uh, Xavier Becerra. You guys can, for California's probably better than I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's right. And to be clear, the lawsuit itself is going to take years probably to play oh, yeah, out. Absolutely. But this is, you know, going to be heavily talked about. It's political ammunition for the Democrats during the election season. You're going to for next June, but the June after. Yeah. Yeah, but be careful when, you know, you make your, or even the June <laughs> fair, after fair that. Enough. <laughs> don't, don't make plans for the end of June for, you know, 2019 or 2020 at this but point. But the other thing is that it, it, it really changed the conversation in terms of the politics because we were shifting to a conversation about costs. And it was the first time that the Democrats felt, you know, the wind at their back that they could say, oh, it's the, you know, the Republican sabotage was blaming costs. The Republicans would have come back and said, no, we're offering you these new cheaper plans, short-term plans, new alternatives, we're bringing down drug prices, et cetera. Both of the parties would have had a cost message and a way of beating up the other side on costs. But what would have been a cost message overnight, thanks to Jeff Sessions, became a pre-existing condition. That's going to be what we hear about in campaign. You'll hear about cost, you'll hear about other things, but is the, if you have to sum up the healthcare political debate between now and November, in two syllables, it's pre-X. Yeah. And as Anna mentioned, the Democrats had already come. Democrats in the Senate had come out as soon as uh, Senator McConnell announced that he was going to keep the Senate in in August, which was mostly an effort to keep Democrats off the campaign trail by keeping them in Washington. Um, he didn't really, he said he wanted to catch up on nominations um, and do the spending bills. But the Democrats immediately came out and said, OK, if we're going to be here in August, we're going to talk about health care. And that was the week before um, this happened. And then, of course, this happened, and now Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leader in the Senate, came out on Tuesday, you know, kind of loaded for bear. Um, and it was interesting, McConnell was asked about it, and his first response was to blame the Democrats for blocking the Affordable Care Act stabilization bill earlier this year, rather than to, to address the actual question that he was asked. So are, are we seeing any of this here in California yet, or is it still a little bit too soon? I think it's a little too soon. I mean, Healthcare is a generality in politics here. People sort of say, oh, can we just fix this? And single payer sounds like the fix that people want. People don't necessarily understand what that means. They, they sometimes mean universal 
universal coverage. Sometimes they mean Medicare for all. Sometimes they just mean uh, I keep what I have and everyone else gets coverage too. So we get down to 0% uninsured, which California is pretty close. We're at about 7% uh, uninsured. And uh, so, yeah, I I think we need to wait and see, but we have Democrats in all the key congressional uh, races in November now. There was some fear that because of California's unique primary system, it's the top two vote getters, regardless of party, go on to the November election. So there was some fear that there were so many Democrats running in this Trump resistance movement. Right. That, everybody's so excited to run. Right. Exactly. That you would end up having Democrats split their votes among, you know, three, four, even five candidates in these congressional districts, mostly in Southern California. And you would just have Republicans all flock to one or two and there would be no Democrat in November, but that isn't what happened. Mostly there's going to be one Democrat and one Republican. And I think healthcare will start to be, you know, starting in August, be the campaign issue um, for that. Well, before, oh, go ahead. Well, so far the Republican uh, candidate for governor has kind of demurred when asked about specifically this court case and other things, because it is not a popular move in California to take away pre-existing conditions, <laughs> nor the rest of the country, but particularly. Particularly here. in California. Yeah. yeah. Before before we go back to, to politics, I want to talk about, you know, the, this is basically a fight between attorneys general, um, which is the plural, by the way. It, it is attorneys general, because you have the Republicans who filed this in the first place, um, and now the Democrats who are defending it. But Attorney General Becerra here in California, who's been active on a lot of these sort of national cases, has some some big California cases, too, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, uh, he's, you know, nationally been suing over Title X, um, also some immigrant stuff, environmental stuff. But in California, he's actually taken up this uh, suit against Sutter Health, which is a a highly consolidated in Northern California health system. They've got... uh, 24 hospitals, 36 outpatient surgery centers. And uh, the investigation into Sutter's pricing actually started under Kamala Harris. And it was not ever brought to fruition. And Becerra took it up and filed the suit um, just this past spring in March. And it's interesting because it's there's already a consumer and an employer suit against Sutter's pricing. And the next uh, hearing is going to be next summer, and a judge just allowed Becerra's suit to join one of those. So actually, we're going to get quicker results than we would have if Becerra was suing alone. But So what's the legal argument, the other legal than you're arg- charging too much? Yeah, I mean, it's anti-competitive pricing, and there have been studies out in California showing that in Northern California, an inpatient hospital procedure costs 70% more than in Southern California because of the extent of consolidation of hospital systems and providers. So Becerra says, you know, the contracts that Sutter has with insurance companies um, are anti-competitive. They have all or nothing, which means, you know, if you want Sutter in your health system, you have to take all our hospitals in your health system. You can't negotiate, you know, a different rate for each Sutter hospital. And if you um, don't include one of our hospitals in your insurance network, then the outpatient, the out-of-network charges that we will incur upon your patients are going to be, you know, astronomical. So it's sort of, they're sort of strong-armed into, okay, fine, we'll have you all in our network. And that gives Sutter a lot of, I guess, uh, pricing power. And then, you know, and they say, well, we're not, you know, if you look year to year, we're only raising prices 3% year to year. But a lot of the problems are already written into the contracts and the consolidation has already happened. So Becerra is coming in pretty strong. Um, and what's he asking data. for? I mean, what would be the... He's asking for um, certain things they do in their contracts with insurers to be illegal and to nullify. And the legislature is also writing bills that would do that legislatively, saying you can't have this in a health care contract, you can't have that. So um, 
for instance, you know, there would be uh, Sutter employees couldn't talk about prices between hospitals so that they couldn't sort of use this insider information to have all the hospitals raise their prices for a procedure at once. So um, we'll see how far this goes. I mean, Sutter's hitting back very hard, but so far it's going forward. And, you know, in back east, which is where Julie and I normally are, when you hear conversations about these kinds of issues about, you know, there's been so much consolidation in the industry, there are monopolization issues, um, Sutter's sort of become a shorthand. Like, you'll, you know, we'll, we'll be at something in Washington and it'll, it'll just sort of pop up. It's like, oh, that's like Sutter. So that's probably not a great sign for Sutter. <laughs> it's like, you know, Sovaldi was the, the, the drug, you know, became the, the shorthand for high drugs. That was hepatitis, the hepatitis C drug. And you just sort of hear the term you know, Sutton popping up as a... I, I mean, I agree. Sutter, I think, among people within healthcare has that sort of... Yeah, but we wouldn't, I wouldn't have heard it this much a couple of years ago. It's really? recent, yeah. But I think among the general... I think among Californians, I mean, your hospital's your hospital. People have a warm, fuzzy feeling for their... I mean, I first became aware of them because hospital. they do a lot of really interesting work on end-of-life care, and that's how I sort of found right. out about them. But, and yeah, a lot of but hosp- now that's not what you hear. Yeah, and a lot of Sutter hospitals aren't called Sutter. They're called, you know, Pacific Palisades, but they're owned by Sutter, so... And they get very testy with journalists when you, you know, say it's a Sutter hospital. They're, oh, no, that's, yeah, exactly. So um, so whether, you know, I don't know, brand-wise, we'll see. But I think, you know, this could really set a precedent for the rest of the country if um, the attorney general here wins this lawsuit and sort of forces these contracting changes on California. That would, I think, set off a wave of other states following suit. So let's talk about politics a little bit. We had California had its primary last week. And Carrie, as you mentioned, the Democrats' big fears were not realized. I think there is a Democrat on the ballot for, for most of the issues. Do we... What could we tell from sort of the voting about what it means nationally? Um, you know, the, the Democrats are trying to take back the House. They need 23 seats. I think they're hoping to pick up seven in California, where in districts where there's a Republican in the seat or was a Republican in the seat, someone retiring. And but Hillary Clinton won the district. So did the primaries tell us anything about the sort of the, the chances for the, the California wave? Well, yes and no. I mean, primary voters are so different from general voters. So I mean, I think all the people who actually follow primaries breathe the big sigh of relief that, you know, both parties got a person in. So now we're going to have a more standard runoff in November. Um, so whether it's a blue wave, I think, remains to be seen. Um, but as far as taking back the entire House, I think we California has to be a part of that. If the, if the House is going to flip, then I think maybe all or six of those seats need to all go to Dems. And that's a, that's a heavy lift. The but. Dems felt good about California. I mean, they don't, it's a, it's shaping, it, the Democratic expectations are, they're increasingly confident about taking back the House. They couldn't do it without California. But it's a really, we're, in case you didn't know, we're living in a predictable era and a really strong economy and a lot of, you know, a president who's very good at messaging and we're only in June. And like in, in current politics time, November is like eight millennium for now. So he could win the Nobel Prize by then. T- twice. <laughs> Huge, right? No, it comes um, out in October. I mean, he really right. could win the Nobel Prize by then. <laughs> or, or not. But the, uh, <laughs> the, the, you know, there's, it's just, you know, you can't put down your phone for five minutes without picking it up and finding out, you know, like 20 years, what used to be 20 years worth of news is now five minutes. So, you know, the 24 second news cycle. I, you know, I think you can never, people thought the Democrats were going to do well in the Senate races in 2016, and they did not. Um, it's a, 
now some of the Senate seats that the Republicans were comfortable about are shakier. Um, there's a lot of flux. Yeah, and there's this interesting tension, I thought, pre-primary, where the National Democratic Party really wanted like this full sweep, blue sweep uh, across the state, and to have it be so, Democrat so on Democrat. So places where they would be right, yeah. Exactly. Two Democrats in some of these but districts. But the California Democratic Party was like, we don't want that. We don't want to spend all that extra money. Um, it's much better for us if we ha- we're running against a Republican, in p- particularly in positions where we feel strongly. That was you know, their kind of take. So that was kind of interesting to see that playing out. But we do have Democrat on Democrat in the, uh, in the Senate race, right? Mm-hmm. And health. And with, they have very positions, different. different positions on health care. Yeah, which is, which is sort of my next question, um, which is, you know, we've been, those of us on the East Coast have been sort of watching California with, with one eye talking about single payer, you know, like California is going to do its own single payer plan, um, which so far, California. Vermont was going to do that. Yeah, too. Vermont was going to do it too, and they didn't. Um, and California so far hasn't. But it's certainly a big issue in these Democratic races between Democrats, right? Yes. I mean, California is going to do single payer in their minds, in words. It, it's going to happen. But I mean, if you parse the words very carefully, I mean, Newsom says, that's what I want. He got the backing of the big single And he's the Democratic gubernatorial candidate. Yeah, he's the The leading gubernatorial candidate. But, you know, he then adds these caveats that say, but I'm reality-based person. It's not going to happen right away. And sort of just saying, you know, the curve of the justice of single payer bends slowly and it might not even be when I'm governor, it might be the next governor. So I'm just going to put some paving stones in the road towards that. So yes, you have to say that it's happening. And Vermont is not an example because they're small and California is a leader. But uh, <laughs> but the, it comes <laughs> down to the same thing, which is yeah. money. Yeah, the well, studies they've done the, are... The, yeah, the inability of a state to attach to Medicare and Medicaid, right. the, the big federal funding streams. I mean, there's, you know, and it's true. I mean, Vermont had sort of a unique problem in that many of the the big hospitals that serve Vermont are not in Vermont. They're in New York and New Hampshire, um, which makes it really hard. In California, at least one presumes that most people who get health care in Cali- who live in California get their health care in California. They don't go across state lines to get it, um, or it, it generally don't. But it's still a problem somehow latching on to that federal money. It's also, it doesn't, you know, like, it, it's such an amorphous term. I mean, the, the, you know, universal access, universal coverage, single payer, public option, Medicare, Medicare for, all. for all, Medicare buy-in, uh, aspirational single payer, um, which is sort of what the Democrats have been sometimes more than others, but that's sort of been this undercurrent in, from, uh, in the Democratic po- politics. But, I, you know, I don't know that pe- two people who say they're for single payer uh, I don't know if they know what they mean. Well, the Kaiser Family Foundation polling shows that depending on how you ask people, right. but words very different reactions. Yeah, they like Medicare idea. for all better, which is why Democrats are talking about Medicare. Medicare is popular. Medicare is really, really popular. So single payer um, is a, a less familiar uh, concept and more ambiguous. But I'm wondering, if, if you're a Democrat in California, can you get away with not being for some kind of single payer at this point? As long as you say you're for single payer. I mean, <laughs> because who's, who's reading the actual policies? But if you look at what Gavin... Gavin if you look at what Gavin Newsom did when he was mayor of San Francisco, he now says, you know, I built this coverage system for all of San Francisco, but he built, it was more like the ACA. He built on the back of, you know, everyone who was covered by their employer was covered by their employer. And then they used, you know, 
Medicaid and city dollars and a mandate on employers, which mostly hit restaurants that weren't insuring their waiters, to sort of incrementally end up pretty close to 0% uninsured. So I guess you can you can call that whatever you want, but if you look at what it is, it's like ACA and then, you know, more moderate Democrats in the California legislature are proposing a similar thing. They've said, well, we don't have to just, you know, do this huge single-payer shift. We can just get that 7% down to close to 0% by covering the undocumented. That would take care of half the uninsured, and then we can use some other state dollars to do it ourselves. And that way you don't need to wait for a new president, a Democratic president, to, you know, get the federal dollars. Right, but, I mean, we all understand these nuances between these, how you would define this program, but, like, to the public, single-payer is part of the political conversation in a way that it has not been before. Democrats challenge has been to, there was a lot of expectation that would be a litmus test that would really hurt the Democrats this year. They've done a really good job of um, papering over their differences, I think, in 2020. That's going to be an awful lot harder. And also between the primaries and the fall, the Republican, no matter how a Democrat talks about universal coverage or Medicare for all, or the Republicans are going to say uh, they want more government-run health care, they'll, they'll sort of attack it that way. But whatever um, under-the-surface simmering splits there are, you know, I don't, I think by 2020 we'll see, it, it would, I mean, it was the Bernie-Hillary split last, and, and it, it didn't really erupt in 2018, but I think you'll... In 2016? No. No, for 20 oh, for now. It, I mean, it hasn't. There are individual primaries where it's been a big issue. It has not been a, a Democrat completely tearing each other apart nationwide. I, I think it could boil up much more in 2020. But are we going to see yet. it, though, in our, in our Democrat on Democrat Senate race? I mean, the, yeah, the Senate, they have different opinions very much. Dianne Feinstein is, uh, is sort of pro-ACA, pro-status quo. Um, Kevin DeLeon has said he's come out in favor of single payer. Uh, Feinstein is polling so much higher than him right now that I'm not sure that's going to be the determining factor. All right. Well, in addition to voting for who's going to be on the November ballot, uh, voters uh, in California last week got to decide some health-related ballot questions. Here in San Francisco, voters upheld a ban on flavored vaping products, and the vote was not close. Yeah, the the vote was not close, even with a huge campaign to stop the man the ban funded by the tobacco industry. Uh, Anna, tell us what happened. Yeah. So the Board of Supervisors last year voted unanimously to ban um, flavored tobacco products. So, as Joanne said, that includes not just um, you know vaping pens, which is what we're mostly talking about these days, but also menthol cigarettes, which are a third of the cigarettes sold in the United States. So this is not a small market share. Um, and which explains why the tobacco industry yes. was so heavily. So R.J. Reynolds, who owns uh, Newport, which is the most popular menthol cigarette, um, they funded a referendum, and the voters uh, voted on it, and 70% almost agreed to keep the ban in place. So um, it, it was really interesting. I mean, the advertising was everywhere for Measure E, and it was in lots of languages, which was kind of interesting. Um, you know, so again, we're talking, you know, there's sort of this national conversation around vaping, and um, that's sort of, I think, how people thought of the tobacco ban. But for the menthol cigarettes, I think is really interesting. You know, um, 80% of African Americans who smoke 
say they prefer menthols. And so there was this little bit of tension where there were some people in the African-American community saying, you know, when there are bans on substances, this tends to disproportionately affect African-American communities. The criminal justice community comes after us. And this is going to be another way that they can do that. There were also um, a lot of national groups and organizations that were saying, you know, but also African-Americans are suffering disproportionately from tobacco-related illnesses. And this is a way to try and reduce the smoking rate. So it was there was a slight interesting tension, even though though um, very much the general public was in favor of the ban. And there are a few other cities and maybe counties, there are a few other places around the country that are looking at something similar. So for the tobacco industry, it was really important to kill it here. And they couldn't. And they, this is, they spent something like $12 million, which is a lot for a municipal election. And they, not, they didn't come close to killing it. So that was, I mean, I think that um, the current FDA commissioner, Scott Gottlieb, has been really aggressive on tobacco. I think he's surprised a lot of people. He's really worried about kids and e-cigs. Um, he's he's um, been more forceful on, on some regulatory issues than anyone has in tobacco in 20 years. So I think this is a real turning point. I think we, I think the whole issue of kids and, and e-cigs is about to become a major problem. I mean, you're the public health reporter. I don't know how. Maybe you're spending 20, 23 out of 24 hours a day. All I know is I've been a parent for a long time, and I've had um, I have a high schooler, and my youngest one is a high schooler, and this is the first time I can remember ever getting notices home from school about this is what a jewel looks like, this is what vaping things look like, and and we I don't even think there's that much problem in my kid's school, but I've, I mean, I've, when they were little, you get those lice notices, <laughs> and then you get the strep throat. I've never gotten a public health notice. The, the really interesting thing about that is jewel is based here in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and they were basically quiet throughout the referendum, and they have said that we're very much a smoking cessation product. We are not, and they've put all sorts of restrictions in place that are supposed to prevent and kids, are still kids getting from it. getting jewel. Right. So kids but it's are cool still that getting it comes it. in like all those colors and flavors and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Smoking yes, exactly. Product. So I'm not. <laughs> but um, but yeah, and that's by far the most popular of the e-cigs. I was surprised to see how quiet they were during the referendum. Right, but it's similar. It's it's almost more of a, a typical California tech issue. Yeah. I mean, if you look at Jewel as a tech device. It looks like a tech device. It looks like a yeah. It looks like a little USB port. Yeah, a little. I mean, it's it's slick and it's yeah. You can, it comes in colors and you can buy little wrappers and it's so to, small to that decorate like, it. You know, like trying to even find it in your kid's dirty laundry, forget it. I mean, if my kid had one and I've had conversations with him and I'm I'm pretty sure he does not. I would never find it. Right, you would never find it and you wouldn't smell it. And I mean, they're smoking it in class, so. Um, but yeah, it's, it's sort of, you know, and they're very, as you say, they say it's not for people under 21 and they're very quiet about, you know, the challenges, but I would say that it's like Facebook or it's like any other tech thing. It's appealing to everyone. It is addictive. And yet, you know, let's just not talk about that part. Let's just say, you know, Facebook is a social network and it's not addictive and, you know, use with your own discretion and parents, control your children's screen time but you know jewel is another thing it's entirely. this big i mean well yeah. you can't and we're on people can't see us i just made a small <laughs> it's, it's, it's a, a thumb little, drive it's, it's yeah. small yeah well and the whole thing with e-cigs is that the, the question is like what's the risk you're measuring right so with they were introduced as something that was supposed to be move people away from smoking traditional tobacco but the concern is that you've got kids now smoking e-cigs who wouldn't have been smokers if there weren't e-cigs so. so this is sort of my question i mean you know okay there were people there are lots of people including in california who will sort of roll their eyes and say well good for san francisco for you know being san francisco um it, but 
it does the concern among parents mean that this could actually translate to some of these other you know cities I can't and counties? Remember the list does anyone remember the other cities that have it? There are there weren't it wasn't just like San Francisco. There were some other yep. communities that were not the most liberal city in America. I'm just wondering if this will if this will you know as the tobacco industry fears if this will you know kind of. Uh, spur other places to try and do this and if the concern of parents might actually start carrying some of these things. Yeah, well, and there are changes with FDA and the way it's regulated fairly recently. So yes, I think this is the first of many conversations that are going to be had nationally about e-cigs, although I'm not sure that the rest of the country is going to be looking at other flavored tobacco products as much. They may may stick to e-cigs. It's politically easier to look at. I mean, their flavors like chicken and waffle. Like, I don't know why anyone would really want to inhale that. And cotton candy. And and bubblegum. Bubblegum. I mean, I don't know too many adults who are looking for bubblegum. Whatever, maybe I just don't hang out in this right circles of bubblegum <laughs> lovers. But you can, I mean, that's not all jewelry. There are other, there are many companies. Um, but I think that this, I think the reason they wanted to kill it so badly in San Francisco is it does open a door and it does create a pathway for other municipalities or states or whoever can do it to see, particularly on the flavored products that are appealing to kids. All right. Well, well staying in, in California for a minute, the legislature is still in session, as it is not in most other states. Um, this week, it appears there is a budget deal, but without an expansion of coverage to undocumented undocumented adults. Um, Carrie, you were talking about this earlier. What what was the what was the hope? open what happened right well this was part of a package of bills that was just going to drive the uninsured down to close to zero percent in california and this would have taken you know three and a half percent of the uninsured uh, sorry it wasn't for all undocumented californians so the proposal was californians who are undocumented that would otherwise qualify for medi-cal would up to the age of 25 would be allowed to enroll in medi-cal and at state expense at state expense because it can't get federal funds for that exactly so no federal funds california was going to foot the bill and in addition anyone over 65 so um that would have you know left the the middle-aged undocumented uncovered but it would have sort of been inching closer to that and california's had you know it's been politically a win and popular that undocumented children have been covered for over a year now um under the age of 18, but, you know, children don't cost a lot to insure. So I think once you're starting to talk about seniors, we were looking at a much bigger price tag, and the governor uh, has so far vetoed it. Um, the budget is not does not need to be finalized until tomorrow, June 15th. So, you know, we'll see if there's a big fight about it, but I don't think so. I don't think it's going to get through. Any other big budget-related health issues that are still kicking around? There, there, there's no single-payer fight this year, right? That was last year. All right. Well, I think we're going to leave it there for the news. We are going to move to our extra credit segment. That is where each of us recommends a health story they read recently. They think everybody else should read too. Don't worry if you miss one. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Who wants to go first this week? Joanne, show them how it's done. But somebody didn't print mine out for me. Well, I was going to take the high road and I was going to go find the most definitive, insightful have to read story that would tell us why the AT&T time merger was going to tell us about the these pending huge healthcare mergers, the insurers that are buying the PBMs and the PBMs that are buying the insurers. And as I was online hunting for this um, mythical, perfect article, I came across one that I forget the high road. I came across an article in the Miami Herald about uh, fatalities related to Brazilian butt plasts. It's called Brazilian butt transplants or something? Butt lifts, I think. 
So they advertise that there have been at least eight deaths since 2013, mostly young women. They advertise, there's a plastic surgeon advertising this on, on Calle Ocho with a main street through Hispanic Miami. $30 a week uh, installment payment um, to get your f- stomach fat taken off and put obviously in a Brazilian butt transplant. And some of them have been fatal. And it just sort of says everything that's wrong with American health care in one sad story. <laughs> Carrie. Is that health care or is that American vanity or marketing? Or <laughs> well, they're all, how can you tell them apart, that's right? That's it's $3.4 trillion. Yeah. There's plenty of vanity and marketing in our health care system. Right. Well, I mean, just going back to, you know, kids and uh, drugs, I... Um, I guess I'm going to tout my own story. Uh, Please this, feel free. This week on Kaiser Health News, um, I did a story that I've been working on for many months about um, drug education. Sort of where is it today? And this was a completely selfish reason that I got interested in it because I'm somewhat new to California. And I mo- uh, began work at KQED the Monday after the presidential election. Um, there was not a lot of attention at the time, but Californians voted to legalize marijuana. And that did not come fully into effect until this past January 1st, so that anyone could walk into a dispensary and just get it for recreational use. And um, I have a five-year-old, and I was sort of uh, so struck by, I moved from Texas to California, and suddenly from a very uh, hard-on-drugs state to this very permissive new atmosphere. And like, what do you say to kids? How do you talk to them about it? So I sort of went into some schools and looked at drug education today, and it was really mind-blowing about you know, there's no more telling kids what to do um, because they're not kids, they're teenager, teenagers and you don't tell them what to do. You, you engage them in a thought process where they internalize uh, what they're going to do when they are confronted with drugs, including Juul. And um, so it's no more, you know, dare and just say no have been completely discredited by lots of research. And but the White House just announced their equivalent to start again but that's right well it doesn't yeah research doesn't always drive policy um or education policy doesn't always drive policy (laughs) so yeah so i've been looking at some of these the newer evidence-based programs um in middle schools and high schools and how they're talking to kids about drugs and it was really enlightening and the main takeaway for me is that it's no longer just the the school's jobs. I mean, parents have to be part of the conversation, so they have a class just for the parents to come and learn all the frameworks and the way to talk about drugs with your kids, and um, and so sort of learned from a panel of high schoolers what the drugs are now. The four hot drugs now in high school are alcohol, marijuana, Adderall, and um, uh, Xanax, and then above all that, Juul. So Juul is also a middle school problem, and all the high schoolers swore up and down that if you think your kid is not either smoking a jewel or have tried one in the bathroom, they're lying and they all have tried it. So it was, it was terrifying. More about jewels than marijuana. Uh, marijuana is uh, still legal under 21 like jewel, but apparently very easy to get as are jewels. Um, and alcohol is now considered less cool to do. Than marijuana or but I figure if the parents know or told those the four cool drugs were something else is already the cool drug. Once we know, forget it. It's not cool anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Anna, um, well, I wanted to recommend a article in the Atlantic Magazine by Olga Kazan called "Being Black in America Can Be Hazardous to Your Health." Um, the reporter for many months follows this young woman who is sort of um, exemplifies why there are so many disparities in health. Um, 
in the United States. So um, it follows her as she's trying as she lives in an addiction clinic and is trying to deal with um, an eating disorder, um, kind of an obsessive compulsive eating disorder. It talks about um, environmental health and you know the exposures to lead and pollution, um, rats, uh, housing conditions, things like that that flare up asthma and a whole bunch of other things, and kind of tries to. Um, nibble away at why there's this almost 20-year disparity in life expectancy between um, non-Hispanic whites and African-Americans in Baltimore. It's really incredible. Well, I'm going to claim the nerd prize for this week. Um, my extra credit is a deep dive by one of our fellow podcast panelists, Margot sanger Cat, to the New York Times, into the fight over medical bankruptcy data. The fight's between two groups of researchers, one that includes then-Harvard professor, now Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren. She was part of a team that rather famously concluded in 2009 that medical debt was the leading cause of personal bankruptcy, accounting for 62% of personal bankruptcy filings. The work helped lead to the passage of the Affordable Care Act. It was mentioned many, many times uh, by President Obama. Then a couple of months ago, researchers here in California analyzed a state database that includes every hospitalization in the state and concluded that medical shocks related to hospitalization only accounted for about 4% of bankruptcies. Who is right? Well, it's almost certainly something in between those two numbers, since obviously people who don't go to the hospital can still go broke for medical bills. Why is this important? Because it would be really good to be able to measure the impact of medical debt on people's lives and this is one important indicator. So I imagine this debate will continue, and hopefully at some point we will figure out what the exact number is. So that is it for today. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, audience in the room here, and thank you for being quiet. Uh, if you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments. We are at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Anna Barry Jester. At Carrie Feibel. At Joanne Cannon. We'll be back in your feed next week, but not until late on Friday, and we'll be coming to you from Aspen, Colorado. In the meantime, be healthy.